Hey there, and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name is Aaron Santamire, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the phenomenal opportunity to have with us Dr. Susan Hyland. We sit down and discuss her book, Finding Phoebe. Uh, Dr. Susan is a professor of New Testament of the New Testament at, at Emory University. Just a fascinating discu- discussion with her. I came across her book after reading about it in Influence magazine. I just appreciated it very much because what I've realized, um, and her book has really helped me process and think about this, is the idea that I've taken a lot of what the role of a woman was in the Old Testament or my perception of what a role of a woman was in the Old Testament and, and transferred that into the New Testament. And I think that's where there's been some confusion on my part in my understanding. And so I really appreciated her just uh, sitting down and, uh, yeah, just having this discussion with us today. On We talk about um, Phoebe as a woman that was described as a sister, uh, as a deacon, as a, a benefactor. Um, we talk about the, the importance of understanding that women own property. We talk about patronage and what patronage is and how that functioned and what it meant that a woman would be looked at as a patron. Um, the ideas that of what a, a virtuous woman was in the New Testament time. And she describes um, what that would look like and how, how that played out. And it's really just helped me um, gain a better understanding. Understanding because we say in the church, "Hey, we want the uh, we want the church of today to reflect what the it was in New Testament times." And so, a, a, a proper understanding of of a role, the role of a woman in the New Testament church, um, would really help us. I think as we are in today, and um, so that we have churches that represent women that have their giftings and talents and their spiritual giftings that are represented, and um, not just represented, um, but valued, cherished, championed, encouraged, and uh, supported. And so I think that's probably more than just represented. So valued, cherished, championed, supported, encouraged, and modeled um, in our churches today so that we can be, if we're, our goal is to be like the New Testament church, man, I think we have some ways to go um, when it comes to that area. So do want to encourage you to, to send in your questions for uh, Back Channel of Foth. That's where we sit down with Dick Foth and get to learn from Dick. Dick is a friend, um, someone I've really gotten to know through this podcast and have enjoyed um, just learning from his wisdom and insight. My email will be in the show notes. You can send me those questions and uh, we curate those and then um, sit down and get to get to have some fun fun times sitting down with Dick and just going over the questions you sit in. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here with a new friend of the podcast, Susan Highland. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Susan, I saw your about your book in Influence Magazine, which is one of the Somebody's God publications, and I thought, that sounds interesting. I need to get the book. So I got the book, read it, and I'm so excited you're here with us today. Will you share a little bit about yourself um, before we jump into some of the questions about Finding Phoebe? Oh, Sure. Um, I am a New Testament professor at Candler School of Theology at Emory University. So I live here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I live here with my family. I'm married and I have two teenage sons. So that all of that keeps me busy, but it's a lot of fun. I'm sure. Professor of New Testament, what does that look like? Uh, well, let's see. I teach two classes uh, each semester okay. on New Testament topics. So. Yeah. 
Um, often the introduction to the New Testament class, uh, okay. which is mostly for MDiv students, okay. but other, uh, we have other programs as well. Yeah. Um, I teach a class this semester called Early Christian Women, which is very closely related to the yeah. subject of the book. Yeah. And uh, another one called Teaching the Bible, which is about learning how to teach Bible studies. Sure. Just a wide variety of things. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting and interesting. It's always interesting. That's one thing about doing the podcast. I get to meet interesting people that have a variety of um, callings and giftings and talents. And you definitely have giftings and talents that I don't have. So uh, it's I'm excited to learn from you um, today. Finding Phoebe. Yeah. What are some of the, the things that you found fascinating about Phoebe and um, the desire to write a book and to help us better understand uh, women in, in the New Testament times? Mm-hmm. Well, the subject matter I was interested in writing about was that broader subject about women in the New Testament. But I decided that Phoebe was a great character to think about as I introduced the topic. Um, we Paul says a lot about her, really, in those yeah. short two verses in Romans 16. Yeah. Um, and he uses some interesting words in reference to her sister, deacon, yeah. uh, benefactor, and so we, we have a lot that we know about her, but on the other hand, we don't know anything about her, right? <laughs> um, she's this sort of mysterious figure, like, what did it mean sure. that she calls her these things? And my question was thinking about if I were one of the first readers of Romans, right? Yeah. What would I think about? What would I know culturally about what those words meant? Yeah. And how would that help shape the way that I, what I assumed about Phoebe? Sure. as a reader of that book. Yeah. So that's the question that I'm interested in. And I hope that um, I, there's no, I don't know that it becomes less mysterious as <laughs> the book goes on, but we learn a lot about the possibilities of what people might've understood. Yeah. Well, I think the, I appreciate the inquisitive mind. It, it helped me begin to think um, broader and um, to begin to examine some of my own assumptions and it just on those three things, sister, deacon, and benefactor, like what would my cultural understanding of those be in 2023 versus maybe that time? Could you just talk about maybe a little bit about those three, sister, deacon, and benefactor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, um, sister, as we know, uh, early Christians often referred to one another as brother and sister. And so this, but it is, it does have a sort of familial connection to it, right? It suggests um, a kind of loyalty to one another uh, that, you know, wouldn't just be true of anybody. So that's interesting. Um, Deacon, of course, is a word that comes to mean, um, you know, an ordained office in the early church. And yet at, at this early point, we sort of wonder like, what, what did that mean? Paul uses it in a way that sounds like she's a leader of the church at Cancry. That's sure. the way he identifies her, right? And so it sounds like an office, but we don't really know what that person's job description would have been, right? Yeah. Um, and then benefactor, we know a lot about really because um, benefaction or patronage was a really common part of the social fabric in the ancient world. And so thinking about Phoebe as a benefactor of many and of Paul himself, um, really kind of opens up some of the world into thinking about what she was doing and what her status was in the church was, how she might have been regarded as a leader and that sort of thing. Yeah, very, very interesting. Very. So the idea of false conceptions that that and you you talk about it in the book that 
the idea that women could not do much in in New Testament times. How does that impact how we read um, the New Testament and how we not just read it, but then interpret it, understand it, and then put it into practice? That's a good question. And that's sort of my shorthand uh, for the way that we often have thought about women in the New Testament period. Yeah. Right? They couldn't much. They're under the control of their husband or their father and sure. uh, all of that sort of thing. I think partly we miss things that are happening in the New Testament. Like we skip over um, some of the interesting things like Phoebe. We don't really um, think that much about her. We don't yeah. assume that she was doing much, right? If women couldn't sure. do much, she wasn't doing much either, right? <laughs> so we miss these words like benefactor. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that um, I think just it can help us to see, uh, to appreciate more, I guess, about what the scripture is saying that yeah. women are doing. And then the idea of the women couldn't do do the women couldn't do much. So is that does that mean women are ideas that they couldn't they weren't involved in work or they weren't how how do you understand that idea of not couldn't do much? Does that is that a fair question? Yeah. Sure, of course. Um, I think it often has a lot of components. So as I said, we have often assumed that women were controlled by their father first and then by their husband. Okay. We have imagined that they don't own any property, right? Everything okay. is controlled by the men. And so they're fully dependent on men, right? So sure. they're not really then agents in any yeah. way. Um, and they are sort of, you know, at home cooking and cleaning and that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, then how that obviously translate into the church and um, yeah. So you talked about property ownership. Um, what are some reasons it's important for us to understand and to consider property ownership? Now I grew up in the church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, um, we were in church. Honestly, this is the first time I'd ever even considered Phoebe. So I appreciated the challenges. And then this, even the idea of property ownership, I never even considered it, but it really impacted me just to get a deeper understanding. So can you share more about that, that idea of property ownership? Yeah, I often start with that because I think that sense that we have of women not owning property in the ancient world suggests that they really are depend totally dependent on the men around them right yeah um, they can't you know uh if you don't have any money at all right, right at a different place in the sure. society um and so it really changes the way that we think about women if we just change that one um fact sure. which is that women uh women were commonly property owners in the yeah. ancient world yeah um and uh the general practice was that both sons and daughters were the heirs of their father. Um, and in the Roman world, especially, the practice was that there was roughly an even distribution amongst your children. And of course, if you only had daughters, then all of your money went to your daughters, right? Yeah. Um, so just the fact that women were um, conventionally part of property ownership and inheritance um, gives us a different sense then of who they were, right? They participated yeah. in the economy. They yeah. had possessions that they were in charge of and they could yeah. make decisions about. And um, that fact alone, I think really changes a sense of what women were allowed to do, right? What they were capable of in the ancient world. And you talk a little bit in the book, but the, just the idea that women were also be able, they could give, 
if you if you don't have any possessions, it's really hard to give if you don't have. Um, but it made me think about, well, women, they were probably they were able to tie. They were able to give when there was for different aspects. And honestly, it was an assumption that I had carried over into the New Testament. And that kind of leads me to my next question. Do you think it's a challenge that we, you know, we read the Old Testament and then we carry some of our thoughts from the Old Testament, maybe how life was in the Old Testament, and then put those into the New Testament? Or is that Aaron Sandemeyer, who doesn't have a degree in theology and the original languages, is that just my fault? No, that's a great question because a lot of us have this, <laughs> this thought. Um, and so we we read the, you know, the material of the Old Testament and we think about like the laws that are there. Sure. And we sort of imagine that even in the first century, hundreds of years later, right, yeah. people are still living exactly according to these laws. Hmm. And I, I think it's a mistake partly because, you know, that legal material we don't really know that much about how people lived according to it, even in the ancient period, but right. it all, all of, all of the time, it has to be interpreted. Right. Yeah. We, um, and, and Jewish people even today have really different interpretations of how to live according sure. to the law. Right. So yeah. we shouldn't imagine that there was a single way to do it ever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but certainly not in the new Testament period. But it, the other thing factor that's really important in the new Testament period is that for 400 years, um, Israel has been Hellenized. Yeah. Right. So there's a there's a lot of Greek influence and the um the patterns of life seem very similar to what we find in other parts of the Mediterranean culture. Okay. So um we should not think as we often have, and scholars have done this too and reinforced the problem, and especially in the 20th century. Um, we should not think that it, that Israel or Palestine is sort of cordoned off from the rest of culture and it's living in this very Jewish way, as opposed to other people who have this hmm. Greek or Roman way. But in fact, the evidence that we have for the time when Jesus was living is that there's a lot of influence going, you know, um, and, and there's a lot of similarity yeah. in the ways that um, men and women live together. Yeah, for sure. And um, once again, it's not something I really considered to, I read the book and then began to think about, and that was where I was at. There was just a lot of things that I considered I somehow read the Old Testament, New T Testaments like this can, you know, you go from the end of the Old Testament to Matthew, it's, you know, like a year, you know, and there is, there's a lot of, there's, there's, and there's different things in time. And so anyway, just the way challenged me and uh, really appreciated it. So, so how did the inaccurate perceptions of women in the New Testament um, impact the church today? Um, I'll start there on that one. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, it's a great question, but it's a big question, right? Because there are lots of different churches out there sure, and they read the New Testament in lots of different ways and make different decisions about it. And even if we think about churches that restrict women's access to leadership roles or something like that, they do it for different reasons, right? Yeah. So there's not like a single way sure. that this happens, but a lot of, a lot of churches will make claims about the New Testament when they say women can't do X or can't do Y, right? Yep. So um, this is definitely one thing that affects uh, or could affect our modern interpretation in the way that we um, apply scripture to our lives yeah. if we have a different sense of what women are doing. Yeah. Could you share about some of those different perspectives you shared in the, in the intro that you're teaching a class on this? Um what are some different ways of looking at women? Maybe, let's say you talked about leadership, women in leadership. 
um, looking at the New Testament? What are some different ways we could look at it? And yeah, just your perspective. Mm -hmm. Oh, sure. Well, mm. <laughs> um, so I guess the way that I have come through this research, the way that I've come sure. to think about women in the New Testament is that women had a lot of different opportunities and roles and their, um, their input was actually valued by their communities. Mm. Um, communities really wanted and needed people who were, you know, people who were capable um, or who had some social standing in the community, they really wanted them to take on leadership roles, right? They wanted them to use their resources on behalf of the whole um, to help to help everyone out, right? And women are some of those people with resources, right? Sure. Some women have a lot of resources in this time period, right? So yeah. if you're so lucky as to have, you know, a woman who would decide to be your patron sure. and um, she's somebody of high standing, uh, nobody really would bat an eye at that. They'd be eager to have her um, participate. And so if we think about those um, that as part of the context in which Christian groups start to yeah. take shape too, right? Sure. And this language about patronage, Phoebe and other women as patronage or hosting house churches, right? It starts to make a lot of sense. Um, and it suggests that these women weren't just, you know, in the background making cookies or something like that, but that they really had a, an authoritative kind of role, right? They were somebody that sure. looked up to. Um, yeah. Now, just like in the culture at large, it, it, I mean, the ancient world was not an egalitarian society in any way, shape or form, right? Okay. Um, in general, people assumed that men were superior to women. Okay. And um, however, uh, they also had a lot of other kind of hierarchies, right? There were okay. freeborn people and freed people and enslaved people. Um, there were rich people and poor people. And so you're, um, when, when someone assessed the overall social status of somebody who came into the room, right? All of these factors came into consideration. So being male or female wasn't the most important factor necessarily. Sure. There would be instances in which a woman would be you know, the highest standing person in the room, and then her leadership would be welcome, right? And yeah. even her speech would be welcome. So yeah. um, thinking about women who are Christ followers, sure. uh, taking on that same sort of role, I think is a really, um, offers me a new way of thinking about yeah. what women were up to in the New yeah. Testament. And like you said, you're the one that's done all the research. So if that's the value for us to get to learn from you um, today. So the idea of patronage, could you maybe just share a little bit? You mentioned that somebody's listening in. They That might be a new word for them and they've not considered it. Patronage, what is it? What would what it would look like for you mentioned maybe if a woman would be a patron, what would that look like? Yeah. Would you just explain that just for a few minutes? Yeah. Patronage was really an essential part of the way that cultures of the time functioned. So they did, um, most of the public works were things that were taken on by individual donors, usually really wealthy donors, right? Okay. So they built temples, um, okay. they built libraries, um, they built, uh, you know, they built, they had buildings where um, groups could meet, um, maybe a guild or an association. And it was the wealthy people in the community who gave 
some of their riches to make these things happen. Um, sometimes um, it wasn't just the wealthy people who did this. Sometimes people would pool their resources, right? And so you end up with, you know, uh, inscriptions that name so-and-so gave four feet of the mosaic floor, right? So-and-so okay. gave eight feet of it. So it's sometimes it's small donors, but the, yeah. it's all, right? It's all this act of using your resources for the, the common good. Okay. Um, there's also individual patronage though. And that would be when somebody would um, offer, give a loan to another person, right? Or let me introduce you to my friend over here because you might need to make a business deal with them, right? Okay. And so yeah. I'm, you know, I'm the one who's got the connections, right? So yeah. I'm the patron and the other person would be the client. Hmm. Um, but that person, the client might be a patron in another context, right? With somebody else that was yeah. had lower standing than them. Yeah. So um, men and women are, participating in these ways, both as civic patrons on a large scale and also um, on the individual scale of making loans and um, social interactions. Yeah. And all of that was sort of the social glue that made everything happen. And so it was really important. Yeah, for sure. And would, would reinforce the idea that, that, and not just the idea, it would it reinforce the reality that women are in leadership roles. And if they're playing that significant of a role in society, um, yeah, that would what we would call it. at least today that would be our definition of a leader. Um, so it's it's yeah, just reinforces that idea. So the idea of a virtuous woman. My mom wrote a uh, she was it was called Women's Ministry at our church, and the title of the it was a monthly journal, and it was Virtuous Woman. So this caught my eye in the book. So what did what did a virtuous woman look like in the New Testament? So for many centuries, a virtuous woman was modest, industrious, and loyal to her family. Okay. And, um, so modesty took on a number of forms. It certainly meant sexual modesty. But in the ancient world, modesty also has the second meaning, which is self-control. Hmm. And self-control is a really important virtue, both for men and women. We see it a lot in the New Testament, actually. Okay. It means things like not getting drunk not okay. eating too much, not having okay. sex with just anybody you want to, right? Okay. Um, controlling your anger, controlling grief, a lot of the emotions, right? Sure. Um, I would say the passions, right? Okay. Um, so being able to exercise self-control and um, not just, you know, willy-nilly do whatever you want yeah. was, was understood to be an important virtue. And part of the reason was that people understood that it was only if you could do those things that you could look look to, to the common good, right. To, um, help people are around you and not to seek your own, um, desires or, or whims. And sure. they thought this was especially important as a quality for leaders. Hmm. Um, if you're, if your king is, um, just, you know, uh, only seeking his own desires, then yeah. he's a tyrant, right. Yeah, and everybody sure. else, if he's angry, he'll just kill people. Right. And he'll <laughs> use all of the money in the kingdom for himself. And that is terrible for everybody yeah. else, right? So um, as as a leader, what you want is somebody who can fulfill that role. And so that modesty is a great example of how, even though we might think of a modest woman as someone who just kind of stays in the background and doesn't do anything, um, in the context of the New Testament, what modesty meant was really something more interesting than that, right? And it gives us a little insight into how a modest woman might have also been appealing as hmm. a deacon, right, or a, yeah. a leader of some sort in the church. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, yeah. And so you mentioned the three virtuous, industrious. What does that? Did that? I mean, I have my so definition yeah. what that means, but is, does it mean the same? 
So um, industry then would, or industriousness would be um, working hard for the sake of your family. And the iconic image for women um, in this time period was the wool worker, right? So um, you can imagine, uh, we most of us haven't done this, right? But making <laughs> clothing from scratch is this sure. enormous process, right? Tons yeah. of work that goes into it. And this was largely thought to be women's labor. Okay. Um, and even though in the New Testament time, uh, cloth came to be available for purchase in cities. So you could actually buy, you didn't, every, every family didn't have to make their own, right? You could actually buy cloth and make clothing from it. But even so, um, it was, there was still a lot of labor involved and it was still largely women who were doing it. And so this, um, it was just sort of a shorthand, if you will, yeah. of course, cultural shorthand, a woman who was a work worker in wool was okay. a virtuous woman, right? Yeah. Um, she's working hard. It's all for the sake of her family. And, um, it didn't, it, it, I mean, in the, in the new Testament period, women are actually working at a lot of different kinds of labor. Okay. Um, certainly not just, uh, wool working. Sure. Um, but, but to use that, um, label for somebody suggested that she was, you know, doing her thing on behalf yeah. of her family, whatever yeah. that thing was. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is loyalty to your family. Okay. That loyalty certainly means sexual fidelity to your husband. Okay. For sure. But it also means just seeking the good of the whole family, right? So mm. a woman um, who is, you know, working hard, that's part of it, right? It connects with industry in that way. But it also might mean advocating for your family, right? Going out there and making sure that people get what they need, right? Or seeking sure. a patron or a connection or... Um, you know, sort of political negotiating when it's necessary yeah. on behalf yeah. of members of your family. And that would once again imply the idea of being a leader. If you're going out and doing what's needed for your family and that type of situation, would that be a correct 2023 assumption from uh, West Virginia and Kenya? Would that be a, would that be correct? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And to be able to see that as a virtuous behavior for women, right? Yeah. Um, so again, I think that the sense that the virtues, I mean, we can, if you think of modest, industrious, and loyal, you, you might think of that woman as being, you know, homebound, working for a family, not ever, you know, um, sure. doing anything outside. But this broader sense of what those virtues meant, I think, give me a sense of understanding how it was, it, women weren't breaking the rules by going yeah. out and doing these things, right? Yeah. They, were, they were still actually enacting the virtues that were expected of them. It just gave them a broader range of action. Very, very cool. Very, very cool. Um, so next, the idea that um, qualifications for women is like in a deacon in the New Testament. Were there differences between men and women? Were they the same? Yeah. What, what does that, what would that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. We only get the sense of qualifications um, specifically from 1 Timothy chapter 3, right? Okay. And it's interesting to me how much overlap there is with the bishop and then the deacon and the women that are mentioned sort of right in order there. Um, the, um, the deacons are, are supposed to be serious. And then the, the first quality for the women is also serious. Okay. Um, deacons are supposed to not be double tongued. Okay. Right. So not say what you don't mean and that right. sort of thing. Um, and then the, women also uh, should not be slanderers. So again, there's something that's related to speech sure. and virtues that are 
um, suggested as the ideal for our leaders. Um, and it seems like, yeah, they're the same for everyone. The um, These virtues also relate very directly to what we were just talking about with self-control a minute yeah. earlier, right? Not being a lover of money, um, you know, not uh, being able to control your speech, right? So that you say the right thing at the right time. Um, they all sort of cohere around that um, cluster of virtues that can be called self-control. Yeah. And, and the idea, this is something I heard on and off growing up as a kid in church and, you know, the idea of silence in the New Testament. Um, was that the counsel only for women or was that for men? Was that from ever, for everybody or how does that look? And I just thought it was very, it was fascinating to me. You addressed it in the book and thought it would be great, great to discuss it. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, silence is related to self-control because it really is about controlling speech Okay. And ancient people understood that it was very hard to control your speech. <laughs> um, and they, they thought about it a lot. And their philosophers write whole treatises on it. So it's a really interesting quality. And the New Testament, it comes up frequently in the New Testament too, and not just about women. Um, so the main idea is that it was virtuous to be able to, to be silent um, at all, right? I mean, sure. think about somebody who just can sort of never stop talking, right? And how that <laughs> exemplifies um, a lack of self-control in sure. one sense, right? Yeah. And so the idea that um, this was difficult and it was virtuous to be able to do that, no matter who you were, is important. But another element of that was that it was important to be able to be silent among people who had higher social status than you, right? Mm. You should always defer to the people with higher social standing and let them speak and not speak yourself. Okay. And so this is one reason why it was common wisdom to say that women should let their husbands speak and not do it themselves because husbands were generally thought to be the ones with higher social status. Um, and so it would make sense. And usually they were older too, right? So it would make sense to have the man be the um, voice of, of the family, if you would. Um, but uh, But there were lots of circumstances, as we've already noted, that women did have higher social standing with sure. relative to the people around them, right? And so I think we should see how this was sort of a malleable rule, not okay. sort of one size fits all. Women are always silent and men are always speaking. But, you know, sometimes women were in a room with a group of enslaved men, right? Yeah. And of course, in that situation, they would be the ones who would be sure. have the right to speak, right? And everyone yeah. would expect it of them. Um, yeah. And to see how the different differences in social standing would have affected um, that kind of wisdom about speech and silence is something that we often miss in the New Testament. Um, in First in Timothy, for example, we get that very famous um, language about let a woman learn in silence with full submission. Um, and, and that seems like it's talking about all women, right? The yeah. way that it's sometimes people will say it's about wives, right? Because okay. the word in Greek can mean either woman or wife. So um, that's one way that people try to limit that. But I think this is really just sort of the same kind of cultural wisdom. You know, women should not have authority over men. But the implicit thing is that it's men of the same social standing that they have, their peers, okay. right? That they sure. should let those men have the leadership roles. Um, in chapter six in First Timothy, it talks about how um, slaves should defer to their masters, right? Okay. 
and what we miss there because we're not really thinking about it is that women were masters of of enslaved people both men and women right hmm. and so um the understanding the culture better can help us see how these things go together i think right yeah. in chapter two we miss the fact that um there were lots of contexts in which women were expected to speak and it was desirable for them to speak or it was just nobody even thought about it right of yeah. course if you're directing your slaves to do work you're going to be speaking sure. right for sure. um, yeah and in chapter six we miss the fact that women are um also enslaving people and um that that was part of the cultural context yeah so it makes it more complicated i think if we don't see that language as sort of a blanket rule that applies in all situations hmm. but i think it also explains a lot about why we see women speaking um, in many parts of the New Testament in important sure. ways, right? Yeah. And nobody says, oh, you're a woman, you can't talk, you know, sure. or something like that. Yeah. Um, it's not that, um, I mean, some people just think of this as contradictory, right? First Timothy okay. just contradicts everything else that's happening. And so they want to ignore it and say it's later, Paul didn't write it, and that sort of thing. But in my mind, this is all part of a sort of complex cultural reality. Yeah. Um, and, and it all does fit together in a way. It's just that the rules about speech and silence were applied in different ways in different situations. Yeah. And people in the culture know how to apply those rules. That's why sure. when you go to a new culture, you <laughs> often make lots of mistakes, right? Sure. As I'm sure you know. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very, very true. And I think, at least for me, I try to move away from the complex and so the idea of the, this, we can just make a hard and fast rule and this applies to all situations, then it takes all the thought and energy out of my mind. But what I hear you saying is it was a lot more complex and understanding the culture is vitally important because if we're trying to, you know, translate that or not translate, but bring that from New Testament times into to present day, um, we, we need to recognize it was a lot more complex is that would you was that a fair would you agree with that or am i not on track yeah no i think that's right i think that's why it helps so when mary magdalene in the gospel of john goes to the disciples and says i have seen the lord right and she's proclaiming the risen christ to them um every i think readers would see that as virtuous right they would sure. not see oh here's this crazy woman doing something <laughs> that nobody should do she's like she's so she's brave right yeah. she's the one who's in there at the tomb when the disciples are not there and then she's receiving the message and going to tell them what they need to know right yeah. and so this would have been a story that you know fit with other stories of com commonly of virtuous women in the time doing something that was needed to be done and that was valuable yeah for sure any last words of wisdom or a question you wish I would have asked that I didn't ask um, when it comes to the realities of women in the old in the New Testament and then women today? Um, yeah. Any 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 things you think I wish you would have asked that question or this is something from your research that you thought was really valuable. If there's not, there's not. But I never want to. You're the expert. So I don't want all my questions <laughs> to drive that drive the conversation. Um, if there's some things or you would. Yeah. It's just your oh answer. yeah, you had great questions. I thought they were super. So okay. thank you for that opportunity. Yeah. Um, there's just so much that we could talk about, sure. in the New right? So many great examples and everything. I think, um, you know, 
I don't know, honestly, what to add that would yeah. be helpful for yeah. your listeners. Yeah. Um, I what, think, what, what's one of the things you're most passionate about? Well, um, so my, I see my job as a professor as giving people tools to interpret scripture for themselves. Sure. Um, you know, we interpret and, and missionaries know this, right? Interpretation yeah. is cultural, right? Yeah. And it's um, contextual and you need yeah. to know your context first. And then you turn to scripture um, with prayer, hoping that yeah. the Holy Spirit will speak to you sure. and help you bring a message um, yeah. for, for the people who need it. Yeah. And so I, I don't have all of the answers. Yeah. For everybody else, I can't say you must interpret it this way in this sure. particular context, right? Yeah. But I hope that I can give people ideas and skills and knowledge that can help them be responsible interpreters of scripture sure. as they try to discern what God wants people to hear about. Yeah. So um, that's the way I think about this book, Finding yeah. Phoebe. I think about it as saying, here's a bunch of stuff you didn't know about yeah. women in the New Testament period. Sure. Isn't that fascinating? And um, I think it changes what it changes what I see sure. as I read scripture, and, right? It changes my, what I notice about Phoebe and others. And so um, I hope it's part of that, um, just part of that process of listening and uh, reading and rereading scripture and thinking about God's word for us. Yeah. So you, obviously your specialty is New Testament, but what I hear you say is you're still inquisitive and you're still, you're inquisitive, you're reading and you're not just saying, Hey, I've studied this for all the years and, and I know it all. And I'm not going to be inquisitive. How do you maintain that sense of curiosity and inquisitiveness when you've dedicated so much to your, to your life to, does, is that a fair question? Yeah. I mean, I, I just think scripture is endlessly fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, maybe that's just me, but no, um, no and there's no. so, there's just so much there, but I always, um, well, not always, but I often, as I reread, you know, I, I'll say, I'll reread the gospel of Mark as I'm preparing to lecture on it in my intro class. I always see things that I didn't notice before. Sure. And yeah. I've read it a lot of times before. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there are just so many parts of the stories that to me are, um, strange or mysterious. Yeah. And I like that. I like the mystery of it. And it doesn't trouble me not to know the answers necessarily, but to just to think about, I, I wonder what's going on there. Yeah. Um, and to, yeah, to just to wonder about it, I think yeah. is part of what makes it interesting to me. Yeah. Well, that encourages me um, because there's lots of parts that I still wonder about and um, and learning to be comfortable in that state of wonder. Um, yeah, that's 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 encouraging to me. It has been an honor to spend some time with you today. Would you pray for us? The God will use this. We'll put links to the book um, and the, in the show notes. But it's just been an honor to learn from you and your inquisitiveness and your encouragement for us to consider the New Testament. And uh, yeah, will you pray for us today? Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to be thank with you. you and I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Let's, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the women of the New Testament. We thank you for their witness. We thank you for their fidelity to you. We pray that they would be an example for us, men and women today, as we try to follow you as well. Go with us as we leave this place and 
guide us into doing your will. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 